I'm struck this morning before we begin just how amazing it is to look across the congregation and to see so many different stages of life represented. 58 years of marriage tomorrow for Stan and Cheryl. That's just awesome. What a remarkable witness and testimony of God's faithfulness through, I'm sure, many dark days, hard days, and many great and treasured celebrations. And then to transition to Noah headed to school and off, uh, I see a happy, swelling mama's heart. Uh, and then to see the little ones uh, maybe running around a little too much, but we're working on that and they're learning. It is amazing to look out and to see what God is doing in the life of our church and the ways that it's growing and the ways that God has been good to us. So let us begin by remembering that God is good. And all the time. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia, often understood as Galatians. We're going to continue our study going verse by verse through the book of Galatians. And today we're going to pick up where we left off last week in verse 10, and we're going to go forward through verse 17 today. So let me remind us that this is God's word and that all of his people should hear it and receive it as such, the very word of God. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia, returned again to Damascus. Would you pray with me, please? Our gracious and heavenly Father, we come to you this morning to celebrate your goodness and wisdom and power. We come to remember and be reminded of your treasure gospel, the one true gospel, the one true gospel that presents and heralds and adores the true and living king of glory. It is an amazing thing to be able to just utter the words, our Father, speaking of the one who made all things. And it is to you that we offer ourselves in service, in life, and in death. May you be glorified. May we be blessed and comforted by the work that you have called us to do and the promise that there is a day of rest assured to us. But while it is day, Lord, may we be workers who delight in your kingdom and walk in your ways. Would you use the message this morning to further your advance of the kingdom of God in us and through us? We ask in Jesus' name. And all God's people agree. Amen. Amen. There is only... One true gospel. If we have caught anything from Paul's letter thus far, that is the highlight. That is the foundation upon which the rest of the letter is consumed. Remembering that the gospel, this message that we have been entrusted with, is not about what people will do for God. It is about what God in Christ has done for us. 
We have said already that ideas don't deserve our compassion. People do. And so when we compromise the truth of the gospel that's unchanging in hopes of developing a relationship that won't stay or stick, we fail both in our love for God and our love for neighbor. This is the bedrock thought that Paul is consumed by in verse 10. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. They are polar opposites. They can never go together. Man-pleasing is idolatrous. Serving Christ is glory. It's true worship. People-pleasing as idolatry takes many forms, but they distill down to the same simple truth that you can't trust God with this moment, with this person, with this relationship. And so as we remember that the message of the gospel is unyielding, it is unswerving, it is never to be adapted or edited. That does not mean that the one true gospel cannot be presented in robust and myriad forms. I think sometimes we conflate these two ideas. That the gospel is unchanging, so a worship service must always look, sound, and feel the same. That is not true. You can hold the gospel unswervingly and make a distinction between drums and organ. True? We can be mindful and deliberate about the presentation of the unchanging gospel. We can use a myriad of styles, a myriad of opportunities, talents that come in so many different ways, but we may never change the message of the gospel. This is part of what Paul is trying to teach the young and hilarious Corinthian church in his first epistle to them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he's become pretty foundational for many Christians in their maturing walk of faith. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 through 23. I want you to hear in these verses the unchanging nature of the gospel and the adaptability of style and presentation. Unchanging gospel, adaptable style. Here too, God's word, 1 Corinthians 9, beginning in 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you see how message-centric this moment is? The Apostle Paul is saying 
It's unto victory of the kingdom of God. It's unto the expression of faith, the telling of the story that people in a variety of contexts most easily recognizable the distinction for centuries now between Jew and Gentile, between the chosen people of God and the rest of the world, the nations. And what he's saying here is not, I hate Moses' laws, because they're God's laws. But that sometimes he will deny himself things he's entitled to and blessed by under the law of Christ and submit himself for a season and unto this purpose, a life that looks like the Jews, that he might have an audience with the Jews, never compromising the message, never compromising his holiness, never failing to advance in his growth of godliness and grace, but rather because of his maturing faith, he is willing to enter in to the sacrifice required that he might share and proclaim God's word to lost people. Ones that he knows really well, because he was one of them. So to the Jews, he understands Judaism and enters in and demonstrates through word and life the goodness of the gospel and why the gospel is better than their traditions, which are, in many cases, overblown or missing the mark. And also, he's an apostle to the Gentiles. He's hearing the song of Hosea. I will call a people who are not my people, my people. He's listening to the promise given to Abraham in Genesis 12 that it is unto the blessing of the nations that this plan of redemption will unfold in his family. It's always the gospel growing in the world. And so as Paul is thinking here about the unchanging nature of the gospel message, he is perfectly eager to see that message presented through various means to various and distinct groups. I remember in college ministry, we were starting and, and growing rapidly a college ministry on CNU's campus that our very own Grace Alexander continues to minister to this very day. And I remember grabbing the leadership. It was about 65 kids at that point. The leadership was about 65 kids. And I remember pulling them aside in a meeting, and I remember asking them to identify the 12 tribes of CNU. If Israel gets 12 tribes, CNU might not have 12, but let's go for it. And they began to identify different nations on our campus. Now, when I say the word nation, I'm almost never thinking about governments and maps and countries. I am thinking about people groups. For the root word in the Greek for nations, translated in English, is ethnos, from which we get words like ethnicity or ethnic, etc. People groups, tribes, if you prefer. So what are the 12 tribes of the college campus? And it was funny and pretty uh, raw stereotyping, but they started to say stuff like jocks and uh, thespians, which is a T-H beginning, they began to think about the band kids or the nerds, which apparently were very distinguishable from the geeks. I am not as well versed here, but people care very strongly. That almost hits which way does the toilet paper roll. <laughs> Supposed to go levels of this is right and that is wrong. Geeks and nerds are not the same. You continue to teach me. I need to learn. But after we got through a handful of the most obvious divisions, 
We started to go through departments like science kids and business kids. Good, good, good. And then the mousiest voice in the room, the gentlest, quietest soul, took a moment of dead silence and squeaked timidly. The couch people? (laughs) And literally the whole room went, yeah! And I went, what? (laughs) We had a, a, a long discourse about a group of students who sort of alienate themselves and withdraw from the rest of campus and its campus life because most of them are commuter students without a dorm room to go back to. And so there was a place in the common student union area where there were some couches set up. And I promise you, from then on, I always saw couch people. Because when you were walking through, you would see the same 20 kids sitting on those couches. And some would go to class and others would remain. And, but it was very clearly marked territory. As the soccer field belonged to the soccer players, the couch people owned the couches. And I remember that same squeaky mouth, you know, girl coming up to me afterwards asking, do you think I could sit with them? Twelve tribes of CNU. And I said, I hope so. Do you want company? Do you want me to meet with you as we meet with them? And she, And with all the timidity melted away from her countenance, she said, no, I got it. (laughs) Mm. The gospel is transformative. But as Paul is thinking about Jew and Gentile and what it takes to do ministry and build friendship, I also want to remind us that people are not projects. They're people. And people can be messy or clean. People can be gruff or polite. But at their core, they have the same need that we have. They have the same struggle with sin, even if its flavor and form is different. The one true gospel is the balm, the salve, that saves those who put their faith in Christ. This is one of the reasons that I love our denomination. I love the PCA. I love it because on any given Sunday around the country, you could walk into a church wearing flip-flops while everyone else is in suits and dresses and trust that the gospel is preached there. And so too could you walk into any PCA church fully suited with tie grasped and choking and listen to organs and pianos, hear a cappella voices singing a psalter. You can hear the thump of a drum and the brilliant plucking of a guitar. You can hear voices in different pitches and ranges singing praise to God, all in celebration of the same gospel, all heralding the good news of Jesus Christ. And we can argue about style and highlights. We can fight about tertiary matters, but our denomination is very clear about the doctrines of our faith. It is also very clearly true that we seek to present that same gospel in different forms and in different ways, reaching different contexts. So maybe you could begin this week asking the question, Who are the 12 tribes that I am surrounded by or part of? Family, friends, colleagues, work, school. We have many affiliations, many loyalties to various degrees, of course. Not everybody loves their dentist as much as I do. 
whom has the Lord given you relationships with? And do you yield in those relationships to the ministry field, the mission field, the ministry opportunity that those communities afford you? See, Paul is writing to a known church. He's doing so because they are meddling with the gospel. They are muddying the waters. They are creating confusion where there should be clarity. And when you start messing with the message, you lose everything. When you adapt the same message in different ways, all is preserved, protected, guarded, as you are guided to adapt it to that context. So as Paul is dealing with the false teachers and the bad fruit of their bad ministry, poisoned fruit of a poisonous thought and teaching, Paul is wanting them to remember this ultimate truth. Consider, not only is he polarizing, pleasing man over and against being a servant of Christ, he reminds them of where this gospel came from, whose authority is at risk or to be upheld here. Listen to verse 11. He goes on, Paul says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. What does he mean? It is not man's gospel. It's the salvation of man. We are, in some ways, the direct object, and in other ways, the subject of the gospel. It is good news for us. So why does Paul say it is not man's gospel? He's saying it is not authored by man. It did not become existent because of the countenance or creativity of man's thought life. It has a greater ancestry. And because it has a greater ancestry, it has a greater authority. Verse 11 is in direct conflict with the expectation and the teaching that the world offers about the Bible. How many times have you heard people say, well, the Bible could say anything you want because it's just man's accumulation of man's writing, Some person sat down and wrote a letter. So what? Mankind has not produced something on behalf of God because there is no God. If all religions are equal, despite the fact that all religions are in conflict with one another, then ultimately what we're saying is it's all imaginative. It doesn't matter. It's not real, it's not true, it's not permanent. You do you so you feel good, fine. That is not what Christians believe. It's not what God has said is true because he is real. This message is true. The witnesses of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus are plentiful and it's trustworthy because It does not originate in the mind of man. This isn't man's message to man. But they represent the Bible. They have morphed Jesus into someone who fits better in their framework and expectation. In other words, there is a man's version of the gospel. It's live better, do better. Be nicer. Salvation through humanitarianism. If we can all just get along, if we could all just love each other, if we could just care about one another. 
If Christians really care, we will share the exclusive claims of Christ. Because it doesn't belong to us in the sense that it doesn't originate from us. And Paul moves into this idea very forcefully. Listen to verse 12. Paul's clearly teaching here that I did not receive the gospel from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Hear the thunderous thought, nor was I taught it. The Bible is much more than man's collection of old prehistoric thoughts that have nothing to do with today. They're just Emily Dickinson level insight into emotional existence. Paul was not taught this gospel. He didn't go to school for it. It's kind of funny. We spend most of our time teaching this gospel and learning it. And Paul is saying in this moment, its origin is not in my imagination. Because I wasn't taught it. In that sense, it is not man's gospel. So what is the contrast with instruction? If it's not something that he was taught, how did he receive it? Well, he received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, we got to deal with the of again. Is this of in the sense of for? Is this of in the sense of from? Is this of in a, in a lesser used by? I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. What do we mean? That the revelation is about Jesus Christ? Well, that's certainly true. But we've done with, dealt with that earlier in the chapter. So what does he mean here? He means that Jesus Christ was the one who gave the revelation of himself. That's what's happening here in verse 12. In other words, it's a revelation which Jesus Christ gave Paul personally. Paul didn't receive the one true gospel through instruction. Instead, Paul received the one true gospel through revelation. And therein lies the distinction. Does that mean we do not teach the gospel? I get fired the second that's true. And that's because he's returned or called me home. Until that day, we are to teach the gospel to proclaim and instruct our Bible memory verses for this week are essential on this topic, yes? All of Scripture is God-breathed. How did everything get made that is made? Was it not in the exhale of breath in, of God? That's why you see in the Scripture wind, spirit, Breath, all the same root. That's why sometimes you'll hear me pray, God, would you just breathe on this? I mean, animate it, bring it to life. So, as Paul is teaching here, he's drawing the distinction between a second generation apostle and a first generation apostle. Apostle. In other words, he's establishing his apostolic independence. He's saying, I didn't get it from Peter or James or John. I got it from Christ. And the reason that this is important is because in the background, what's happening is these false teachers infiltrating these churches in this area are telling them to ignore what Paul said, undercutting and undermining his authority, saying what he is saying can be dismissed because he wasn't one of the original 12. So he's somehow a second-class teacher and proclaimer of the gospel, despite the fact that that's not what Jesus said 
That's why his conversion story in Acts 9 is so important for us to have clear understanding of. The resurrected Christ made himself manifest to Paul as he was often referred to as Saul with the warrants to arrest Christians and kill them, jail them indiscriminately to do this. So when Paul says I didn't receive it from any man and that he wasn't taught it, that he received it through revelation, what he's saying is I have the same authority given by the same spirit of the same living God. If you listen to Peter, listen to me. And in fact, there's a moment coming that's described in this letter where Paul rebukes and corrects Peter. Peter? Yeah, that Peter. Denial Peter. Restored Peter. Blabbing idiot Peter. Gracious lover Peter. Kind and brutish. Peter, that Peter. And Paul says, your message is true and your actions betray it. Well, that's a correction we all need. Maybe not always to our face in public, but if our sin is public, our repentance should be public. How many of us sin publicly and want not to face that sin publicly for another day? Verse 13, Paul's going to go into his background. For you have heard, and how have they heard? Because Paul had taught here for years. You have heard of my former life in Judaism. Yeah, this is another way of introducing the scandal of his past. How I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Such a compacted sentence. Paul's saying, before, I was religiously zealous. And that meant I was going to protect my beliefs. And I was urgently to do so. And that urgency, the compelling nature of my commitment to my Judaism and its heritage led me to persecute those whom I saw changing a message that I thought was unchangeable. And I was wrong. We have to be very, very careful here, fellas. Ladies and gentlemen, we must be very careful because there are many in our day who will say, well, if Paul's religious fervor could have been in error before, why do we believe that it's not in error now? If Paul's whole life can be changed in seeing the truth of a message that was changed, why can't we just do the same thing Paul did? If he can turn Judaism into Christianity, why can't we turn Christianity into some other form of whatever we might still call Christianity? You want to know what the answer is? Paul didn't invent something forward-looking. He didn't do so because there was a culture clash. There was a culture clash because of what was revealed, not the other way around. The message wasn't changed to fit the circumstance. The circumstances arose because the message was, wait for it, reverted to its original purpose. Paul's never inventing something new. He's understanding now What's always been true. 
that he missed. The traditions of his culture and community had come to the foreground when they belonged in the background. Ooh, doggy. If you start looking at your life, ask the question, which came first? Me wanting to change the message to, to ease the burdens of my life, or are there burdens in my life that I have created through compromising the message? Through letting secondary things become primary. I believe, and I could be wrong, that C.S. Lewis is the one who said, if you give primary things for secondary things, you lose both first and second things. The main thing has to be the main thing. And the other things give way to it, not the other way around. Paul's saying, I wasn't taught this. It was revealed to me. Well, that's the language of Moses. It's the language of David and the prophets. For centuries, God has made himself known. So Paul was a persecutor of the church. And he did it through the use of violence. Even to the degree of murder. He used the law to extract vengeance in order to destroy the church. I mean, can you articulate a motive more clearly? Why were you arresting those people? Because they were perverting the gospel, heralding this Jesus as God, and that's blasphemy. Blasphemy deserves death, so I will use all the legal recourse I can to accomplish my end with the simple motive of destroying it, silencing the gospel, crushing it. If there are no Christians, there is no more proclamation. It's actually a helpful vantage point if you consider it just for a moment. What is the enemy of the gospel trying to do? Destroy it. Destroy the messengers of it. This is why we are afraid, yes? We are afraid of the wrath of the world. We are afraid of the consequence of being really known. Of what we know and love coming out in such a way that its opposition will destroy us. Yes? The desire to compromise and remain silent comes from a fear of consequence. Why on earth would we fear the world more than we fear God? Why would you feel the, be afraid of the creature more than its creator? That was Paul's past. It's who he was. In fact, so much so, verse 14, he tells us that he was advancing in Judaism. That phrase hurts my heart. Advancing in religion? Isn't that another way of saying advancing in the eyes of the religiously powerful? This isn't growing in holiness. This is growing in power. Growing in fame. Probably affluence. He was advancing in Judaism. What does it mean to advance in the kingdom of God? Wouldn't it be serve more? Wouldn't it be sacrifice? Suffer? Growing in grace means facing sin and being freed by God's grace and mercy and the empowering work of his Holy Spirit. Do you advance in Christianity or do you grow in Christ? They're very different attitudes, yes? The goal, the heart condition is very different. If you want to live in love like Jesus, it's different than if you want all the things that the world offers with a slightly religious take on them. 
He's advancing in Judaism beyond many of his own age. Among my people, Paul still knows that his Jewish heritage is real. So extremely zealous was I, Paul says, for the traditions of my fathers. Notice he doesn't say, I was zealous for the one true living God. He was into a religion. Gave his whole life to it. Why? Well, it's because it's what his father did and what his father did and what his father did in the family business was to be a really great Pharisee. And Paul was more eager than most. And then we read verse 15. But when he, this is God, who had set me apart, it's another way of describing holy, before I was born, huh? And who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. What Paul's saying here is that he had an eternal decree attached to his name. That in the mind of God, according to the pleasure of God, there would one day be a Saul of Tarsus who would be allowed, according to God's sovereign will and providential work, be allowed to kill Christians for a season. And then, in being rescued from there, being so transformed, radically renewed, that the things that defined his past, hear this, the things that define his past would be so released from him that he would have a new master and a new purpose and a new life and a new trajectory. And that's where we say what we said last week. And we remember Paul traded all the achievements his boyhood mind could imagine for afflictions in ministry that he could never imagine. Shipwrecked how many times? Beaten with a whip 39 lashes, never to get the 40th lick so that they could do it again another time? How many times did he get forced to open the flesh on his back? For the message of Christ. This is the guy who tells us that he has learned contentment in all circumstances. It doesn't matter. If I have plenty of stuff, awesome. If I don't have plenty of stuff, if I have no stuff, awesome. Because my joy, my peace, my best cannot be tabulated in this realm. It is entirely invested in that this place is temporary. Money blows in, it'll blow out. Power, fame, they're all fleeting. You can't keep them. We love to build people up and tear them down. Makes us feel as a culture good somehow. We like to see the rise, we like to see the fall. Paul's life is an example of how important it is to understand that your purpose and your future are tied to eternal things. Eternal decrees of the will of God unfolding in our very midst. Here, Paul is using the language of the prophet Jeremiah. Listen to Jeremiah's calling. See if you can hear the the relationship. Jeremiah, the prophet of old, had a very difficult calling. And his circumstances of ministry really stunk. He was called to brutal, brutal circumstances. 
Listen to this, Jeremiah chapter one, verses four and five. Now the word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah writing, saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. It's another way of saying set you apart. I appointed you a prophet to whom? To whom? To whom? This is a brilliant Jew. This is a guy who knows Judaism inside and out, knows the Bible inside and out, quotes, calls, teaches, principles. He's got it all buttoned up. Why on earth would a holy, brilliant God send the best Jew to everybody else? And take the lowly, terrible, hilarious fisherman, uneducated, knows nothing, always says, and most of the time it comes out good, and give him to the hoity-toity, prudish Jews. Would you make that call? Is that your human strategy? No, it's not mine either. But the beautiful mind of God is so much greater than ours. But do you hear the same pattern of calling? I had a purpose for you from before you were born. That's going to be true of Jeremiah. It's true of Paul. And what it means is that Jeremiah had to watch as the Lord sent his people into exile. And he had to watch the holy city of Jerusalem being besieged and destroyed. I mean, I like the room that we're in. We worked pretty hard to be here. We invested an incredible amount of time and money relative to who we are and what we have. But how much greater the temple in Jerusalem that Solomon built that generation after generation after generation after generation for hundreds of years, everybody came to that place to do those things. And it is wiped out. And Jeremiah has to say, this is the consequence of your sin. This is the consequence of your sin. This is the consequence of your sin. If you, if you hate God, why would he let you worship him? If you hate God, why would he let you worship him? I guess it would have to be by grace. It would have to be the mercy of God unfolding in the lives of undeserving people. Here's my question for you today. Do you believe that Paul's eternal election and decree is somehow significantly different than yours? Do you think that church history has special people who are marked out for special moments, but everybody else has different rules? I'm going to tell you in some part of your heart, there are places where you think that. And it's not true. Do you think the plan of redemption was at stake? Could be lost? Do you think that there was a way in which God was going to have a remnant who wouldn't survive? That the glories of what Christ has done would be lost on the planet forever? No. He loves you. He loved you before there was a star in the sky. He knew you your loves, your hates, your desires, your proclivities. He knew all those things. And all of those things are being worked out in a masterful plan that never takes away your will, but never sees your will as greater than his. Paul was set apart for the gospel ministry, and y'all, Jesus tells the disciples who become apostles to tell us that that's true of us too. You have a calling. You have work to do. God has given you specific, clear, 
important work, good work that you should do, that he would be glorified, that his nation would expand to the ends of the earth, not as one people group, but as in a sacred assembly of men and women and children gathered together from the very ends of the earth. Brothers and sisters, the witness of this letter is that the gospel is not about what you do for God. It's about what God in Christ has done for us. And because of that, we are impelled into the world. Because of the goodness and kindness of God, we repent and seek to express all of these things. So I ask you, who were you before you were in Christ? What is your history And why do you believe that that history has a stronger grasp on you than God's grace does? Why do you think that your sin is greater than our Savior? Take your shame to the cross. Remember who you are in Christ and catch another vision of who you are becoming formed in the image of Christ for the sake of his kingdom. I close with this truth. Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. Jesus broke the power of sin in our lives. And one day soon, Jesus will remove the presence of sin forever. That is our gospel message. Hear it, believe it, and speak it boldly. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you do not let the past define our future, but Christ defines our future. So come, O God, and be glorified in us and through us. Give us bold speech, for you are worthy of all praise You are the purpose of our lives. So come, come and give us your spirit that the blessings of Christ would be poured out, not just on us and end, but in us and then through us. May we love the Great Commission. May we remember the calling that we have and that that calling is not decided by our circumstances because you factored in both our stupidity and rebellion in the calling that you have for us. So overcome our sin today, that we might glorify you today and tomorrow and every day. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen King, and all God's people agree.